Listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. We should be finishing up this novel, and I want to do it justice. But before we get into the novel, I have a few things to talk about, per usual. And before I talk about the other shit, I want to go ahead and get the schlock spiel bullshit out of the way. If you'd like to support the podcast, go buy my books. That leads me into my next point. But you can find my books on Amazon. They're 99 cents on Kindle. Most of them are. Right now, as of 6-4-2022, they are free on Kindle, so go download those. You can find free PDF copies of my books in my pinned tweet on Twitter, at Patrick Attaway, with an extra little Y at the end. If you don't know how to spell my name, it's on the fucking podcast. Also, if you would like to support in a way that doesn't involve reading because you're either illiterate or you're not interested in reading poetry or novels or short stories, you can listen to my music on Spotify, Amazon Music, YouTube, la-di-da. Just search for Lurking Vowel. I hate doing this part, but I have to to say that I did. Because I have to promote my stuff on here. Because... You know, I have more faith in my listeners than I do in the over 13,000 people following me on Twitter right now. And that leads me into the whole point about people returning ebooks. And there's a whole controversy about this. So apparently, and this, is, this has been cropping up on Twitter here lately multiple times where people are claiming that there is a TikTok video or there are TikTokers. People sound like Trump when they talk about TikTok on Twitter half the time. But they claim that there are people on TikTok telling everyone that they can get their ebooks for free. All they have to do is return it within the 365-day window and get their money back. And a lot of authors on TikTok, which is somewhat separate from Twitter, have made a bunch of videos stating that they don't support people returning ebooks at all. I cannot find a single video of anyone on TikTok saying you should do this. You should totally treat Kindle and Amazon like a library, all that. It's all bullshit. I'm pretty sure it's all bullshit. I think that what has actually happened is that because people on TikTok have complained about returns, now people on Twitter have interpreted that as, and by people on Twitter, I mean a lot of the people are older, so they're probably not on TikTok and they don't realize what's actually going on. And they're just seeing this through the grapevine. I'm fairly confident that they're just misinterpreting this whole thing and they think that there are are kids on TikTok telling people to steal books. I have not seen any evidence of that. I looked on TikTok several times. I looked under several different hashtags. I asked for people to send me the videos. No one did. I think it's bullshit. And I think that the people in the writing community are, are creating false drama in order to get more attention, which is what they love fucking doing. And there's no fucking writing community on Twitter. It's a bunch of different people who are trying to profit off of you. And the only people who are actually looking at their tweets are other writers who are also trying to shield their books. Okay? Okay. So, the only person who responded with any kind of video or link to that inquiry I'm not going to say his name on the podcast. He's not going to listen. But he posted a video of 
a woman who had less than 300 views on her her video who said that she supports people who don't like books returning the books if they're dissatisfied with the product, which I agree with. I think that if you don't like a book, you should totally return it. A lot of people seem to think that that's immoral because it's an ebook, but if you go to a bookstore and you read the first page of a book and you read the back material and the synopsis and you think you'll like it, you take it home, you get maybe 50 pages in, you say this is terrible. I spent, you know, 15-20 bucks on this. If it sucks or it offends you, fucking return it. What what makes that different from an ebook? Why not get your money back if the book that you bought that you read 50 pages in or so, why not return it? I mean, who honestly cares if you read the whole thing and if you don't like it? Honestly, I would as an author, I would rather you return it and get your money back than lead a bad review. Most people who leave bad reviews they're doing so out of spite, especially with indie authors. There was one guy that I blocked, I want to say maybe two years ago. He was just an overall douchebag, and I had tolerated him enough, so I blocked him. And then he goes and he creates a Goodreads profile just to give a one star to one of my uh, short stories. And then he tried writing something on my Goodreads profile, which I deleted. I mean, people are fucking petty. So, uh, you know, this whole writing community thing on Twitter fucking sucks. I mean, it's full of toxic people. And then there are a bunch of people who are apologists who say, oh, it's good if you give it a chance. Uh, No, I'm exasperated just talking about it. I don't want to talk about it, but... The fact is, is that this so-called community is just a nonsensical bullshit fest where people are trying to profit off one another when they discover that not everyone is a beacon of kindness or not everyone's going to kiss their ass hoping that they buy a book, they get offended. What's ironic to me is that a lot of the people who complain that people have bought their books and never read them have also bought my books and never read them. They might have read one thing that I've written, like one of my poetry books. You can read that in one sitting. Come on. But when it comes to my what I would think of as my masterworks, my novels, a lot of the people who buy them, they just sit on them, you know? And I would honestly rather someone read it for free and enjoy it than, you know, spend five bucks on it and then never read it. I don't care if I get money from it. That's the thing. Most of the people on Twitter who are selling their books, they're not making a living from it. Okay? A lot of romance authors who are writing a specific genre are making money off of it because their target demographic are the ones who are willing to spend money on books. And I'm not going to say who, but you know who. It's not people in their, their teens and 20s who are shelling out money for romance novels. Okay, I'm not. If you're a teenager or if you're twenty something and you're listening to this, and you're like, oh, he's insulted me. Get the fuck over it. You know I'm not talking about you. We're speaking generally here. And if you don't understand irony, if you don't understand generalization, if you don't understand hyperbole, if you don't understand comedy, then what the fuck are you doing with your life? I run into so many people on online who don't understand irony and what's funny is that I went through a bunch of my old tweets that I'd screenshotted and I also screenshotted negative interactions because you never know and one time I posted this scale that was actually posted by a woman and it was uh, a scale that measured the beauty of a woman based on their appearance and it was supposed to be satirical I don't remember the exact scale, but I have the the tweet screenshotted, and I know that women responded to this person who got offended by it and said, you know that this is a joke, right? This is, this is making fun of men who are sexist pieces of shit. 
The same thing happened. I've talked about this before. I once said that I feel that women are the best leaders, that they make better leader, leaders than men. And a woman on Twitter got offended by that. She thought that I was trying to be sexist. No. I actually do feel that women make better leaders than men. I, In my entire life, my mother, she raised me by herself. She was a single mother. She's had the same job for over 30 years. Most of my teachers have been women. Most of the people who I've looked up to outside of writing and music and everything, people in my personal life, they've been women. Okay? And if, if you're unaware of my personal history, I'm not a big fan of my dad. Like, I like my dad to an extent. We talk on the phone now and then. Uh, I appreciated the fact that he told me recently that he read my novels. But, you know, overall, he was not a good father to me. Okay, and he's admitted this, and that's fine. We get along fine, but I, as a result, my my faith in men as a whole is not based on wanting to to have some sort of um, synchronicity with my gender. I don't just stand with people because they're men over women. And what's interesting about the way that people interact online and offline is that they want to generalize gender, they want to generalize sex, they want to generalize race or religion or politics. And it's fucking stupid to me. And what's funny to me is that, yeah, there's something called punching up and punching down. But punching up is when you're being punched down on. And if you're just constantly posting misandrous stuff if you're just post constantly posting racist stuff and you're not white well that doesn't make you better it doesn't mean that you're right i don't understand why you have to generalize based on you know what you are if you're listening to this you already know what the fuck i'm talking about and i'm preaching to the choir right now and i don't want to do that I don't want to do that. We're reading a book that was written by a man, Ralph Ellison, that wanted to write the great American novel. Not the great African-American novel. Not the great black American novel. He didn't want to write a a book that was just about black people. He didn't want to write a book that was just about the oppression of black people. He didn't want to write a book that was just about how shitty white people are. He wanted to write a book about the shitty American experience and how this capitalistic, this capitalistic society built on the pursuit of power is a lie. It's a myth. Very few people obtain power that makes them noteworthy. That's the whole point of the fucking book. When he gets to the epilogue and he realizes that people like Bledsoe and Jack and Roz all these people, they are insignificant outside of their little circles. The fucking dude I was talking about a few episodes ago that works for Fender now, he's always wanted to be a big fish in a small pond. There are people all over. There are tons of small ponds. And people want to be important in them. I have always tried to to stay away from all of that bullshit. I have... I've talked about this before too. I've had I I have over ten thousand people following me on Twitter. That amounts to nothing. If I deleted my Twitter account today, nobody would miss me tomorrow. Okay, and I don't want you DMing me saying, "Oh, I'd miss you." I don't give a fuck. I really do not, because unless I know you in real life. I'll probably forget you next week because it's been plainly obvious to me for the past three years that all the connections that we've made online, they're farcical. Now, I'm not saying that we can't be friends online. I'm not saying that we can't have a relationship online. But the reality is is that it's all opportunistic. And I don't give a fuck if you buy my books or not. I give a fuck if you read my books or not. And when I put a pinned tweet up with 
a link to download my entire bibliography, save for, you know, my first four poetry books. They're collected in Glutton for Despair, which is available in that link, save for my upcoming novel entitled Birch that's available July 1st. I worked a plug in there. There's no fucking excuse for you not to read my stuff unless you don't want to, which is also perfectly fine. But I get so many people bullshitting me all the time. That's all that is on Twitter. It's all bullshit. People will say, oh, I'll wait until the paperback comes out, and then they don't buy it. I, I, I don't understand why you need to lie to me. I'm not going to like you more if you lie to me. I'm going to like you a lot less. And I also don't really need you to tell me that my stuff is not for you. I don't need you to tell me that you're afraid to read my stuff. I'd rather you just keep your fucking mouth shut and not even acknowledge the fact that I'm a writer. I don't care. It's not part of my entire identity. I did not mean to spend the first 15 minutes of this fucking podcast going on a goddamn rant. (sighs) Listen. This morning, I woke up with a beautiful woman in my bed. This beautiful woman and I had breakfast together. I got to rub lotion on her. I get to call her my wife. I got to kiss her goodbye before she went in the afternoon to go meet with friends. Because, you know what? Those of you who are out there who don't understand that your spouses need social lives too... Uh, I'm here to tell you that that will create a schism in your relationship if you do not allow your spouse to have friends. So she has friends, I have friends. And on top of that, the fact that you know I have friends, I have family that cares about me, it's all insignificant in comparison to them. okay? I'm not unhappy with my life. I was just thinking about the fact that I now have a master's degree in English and that's effectively meaningless because I've started a career in in an entirely different field. I'm making more money than a lot of teachers are and on top of that, there are people that I've graduated with who I see working retail now because they can't get teaching jobs. And we were told in one of our teaching seminars that statistically, the people who are able to get jobs in their field after they graduate with a master's or even a PhD is really low. In fact, here lately, it's been lower for people with PhDs. I had to tell my dad on the phone the other day when he, when he and I were talking that I will probably never get my PhD because it would be stupid. There's, there's no job market for it now. I've applied to three teaching jobs, okay? And here's the thing. I've, I've not gotten any communication back from them at all. And academia is different than the real world. That's another thing. I've applied to jobs in my field outside of academia. And if they were going to give me a dismissal or rejection or whatever you want to call it, they usually do it within the week. Or they don't respond at all. But most of them will tell you they're not going to proceed with hiring you. Um, Most of the people who are interested in interviewing you are interested in hiring you. I'll tell you that. And I was thinking, you know, I really kind of shot myself in the foot by not getting any teaching experience while I was in the graduate program. Because I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't afford to give up my job and TA or teach courses when I got further in the program. I couldn't afford to do that. But I was kind of smart to not do that because there are people, like I said, who've graduated with their masters who I see working retail now, and they obviously hate it. And I don't judge them for that. When I finished my bachelor's degree, Unlike them, who most of them went straight from getting their bachelor's to getting their master's, I got a job. And my first job with a bachelor's degree was at Walmart. And it fucking sucked. And now I'm, I'm coming up on 20 minutes of ranting. 
and incoherent babble. Okay, we're going to get into the Invisible Man, and I'm going to try my best to to give you and Ellison the best that I can today. I'm not in a bad mood, but the reality of the whole TikTok book thing that got me started on this is that the writing community on Twitter, the so-called writing community, is full of shit, and the reality is that they make up drama for the sake of attention and to get more book sales. Because I guarantee you a lot of people have twisted it into them sending people links or even telling people that they can support them by getting uh, by buying their books, whatever. And, and you know what? More power to them if they get sales from bullshitting. But I also feel bad for the people who have been able to prove that they've had a lot of returns. I feel bad for them. However, if you're an indie author and you got into this for making money, you're in the wrong business. I'm on page 556, 556, and Roz the Exhorter, now Roz the Destroyer, is leading a pack of people who are rioting. And the Brotherhood has initiated these riots to create distress in Harlem. Because, as it turns out, the Brotherhood is actually working against poor black people and poor people in general in Harlem. And they use the I Am and people like him to initiate this disaster. They moved in a tight-knit order, carrying sticks and clubs, shotguns and rifles, led by Roz the Exhorter become Roz the Destroyer upon a great black horse. A new Roz of a haughty, vulgar dignity dressed in the costume of an Abyssian chieftain. A fur cap upon his head, his arm bearing a shield, a cape made of skin of some wild animal around his shoulders. A figure more out of a dream than out of Harlem, than out of even this Harlem night, yet real, alive, alarming. Come away from that stupid looting, he called to a group before a store. Come jine with us to burst in the armory and get guns and ammunition. In hearing his voice, I opened my briefcase and searched for, for my dark glasses, my Reinhardts, drawing them out only to see the crushed lenses fall to the street. Reinhardt, I thought. Reinhardt. Earlier in the novel, a few pages back, the I.M. is able to masquerade as someone known as Reinhardt. He never meets Reinhardt, but he apparently bears a resemblance to him because he's able to put on glasses and a hat and pretend that he is Reinhardt. This is the only time that he dons any sort of identity beyond being the I.M. The police were back there behind me. If shooting started, I'd be caught in the crossfire. I felt in my briefcase feeling papers, shattered iron, coins, my fingers closing over Tarp's leg chain, and I slipped over my knuckles, trying to think. I closed the flap, locking it. A new mood was settling over me as they came on, a larger crowd than Roz had ever drawn. I went calmly forward, holding the heavy case, but moving with a certain new sense of self, and with it a feeling almost of relief. Almost of a sigh, I knew suddenly what I had to do. Knew it before it shaped itself completely in my mind. Someone called, look! And Roz bent down from the horse, saw me, and flung, of all things, a spear. And I fell forward at the movement of his arm, catching myself upon my hands as a tumbler would, and heard the shock of it piercing one of the hanging dummies. I stood, my briefcase coming with me. Betrayer! Roz shouted. It's the brother, someone said. They moved up around the horse, excited, and not quite decided that I faced him, knowing I was no worse than he, nor any better, and that all the months of illusion and the night of chaos required but a few simple words, a mild, even meek, muted action to clear the air, to awaken them and me. I'm going to take a sip of this lime sparkling water. I am no longer their brother, I shouted. 
They want a race riot and I'm against them. The more of us who were killed, the better they like. Ignore his lying tongue. Tongue, Raj shouted. Hang him up to teach the black people a lesson. And there be no more traitors. No more Uncle Toms. Hang him up there with them, blasted dummies. But anyone can see it, I shouted. It's true. They counted on this man, too. They needed this destroyer to do their work. They deserted you so that in your despair, you'd follow this man to your destruction. Can't you see it? They want you guilty of your own murder, your own sacrifice. Grab him, Roz shouted. Three men stepped forward and I reached up without thinking. Use actually a desperate oratorical gesture of disagreement and defiance as I shouted, No! But my hand struck the spear and I wrenched it free, gripping it mid-shaft, pointing forward. They want this to happen, I said. They planned it. They want the mobs to come uptown with machine guns and rifles. They want the streets to flow with blood, your blood, black blood, blood, and white blood, so that they can turn your death and sorrow and defeat into propaganda. It's simple. You've known it a long time. It goes, use an N-word to catch an N-word. Well, they used me to catch you. And now they're using Roz to do away with me and prepare your sacrifice. Don't you see it? Isn't it clear? Hang the lying traitor, Roz shouted. What are you waiting for? I saw a group of men start forward. Wait, I said. Then kill me for myself. For my own mistake. Then leave it there. Don't kill me for those who are downtown laughing at the trick they played. But even as I spoke, I knew it was no good. I had no words and no eloquence, and when Ross thundered, hang him, I stood there facing them, and it seemed unreal. I faced them knowing that the madman, in a foreign costume, was real, and yet unreal, knowing that he wanted my life, that he held me responsible for all the nights and days, and all the suffering, and for all that which I was incapable of controlling, and I know... No hero, but short and dark, with only a certain eloquence and a bottomless capacity for being a fool to mark me from the rest, saw them, recognized them at last, as those whom I had failed, and of whom I was now, just now a leader, though leading them, running ahead of them, only in the stripping away of my illusionment. I looked at Roz on his horse, and at their handful of guns, and recognized the absurdity of the whole night, and of the simple yet confoundedly complex arrangement of hope and desire, fear and hate, that had brought me here still running. And knowing now who I was and where I was, and knowing, too, that I had no longer to run for or from the Jacks and the Emersons and the Bledsoes and Nortons, but only from their confusion and patience and refusal to recognize the beautiful absurdity of their American identity and mine. I stood there knowing that by dying, that being hanged by Roz on this street and this destructive night, I would perhaps move them one fraction of a bloody step closer to a definition of who they were and of what I was and had been. But the de definition would have been too narrow. I was invisible. And hanging would not bring me to visibility, even to their eyes, since they wanted my death, not for myself alone, but for the chase I'd been on all my life. Because of the way I'd run, been run, chased, operated, purged, although to a great extent I could have done nothing else, given their blindness and my invisibility. And that I, a little black man with an assumed name, should die because a big black man and his hatred and confusion over the nature of reality that seemed controlled solely by white men, whom I knew to be as blind as he, was just too much, too outrageously absurd. And I knew that it was better to live out one's own absurdity than to die for that of others, whether for Raz's or Jack's. You have to wonder. Because Ellison was a little bit more conservative than some people might realize, but also the fact that he's essentially condemned 
people who run in groups together, people who follow the same ideal, whether it's right or wrong. Because the fact is that everyone is an individual, whether they realize it or not. And even if you think you have the same goal, it's possible that you don't actually all have the same goal or you don't have the same methods of attaining that goal. And there's something problematic about a bunch of people coming together and stating that they, sh they share the same ideals. I mean, this morning I was reading about Gary Sinise's, what he called a conservative support group and networking system. It's called Abe something or another. I, I don't remember. It's obviously a, a nod to Abraham Lincoln, which uh, a conservative... <sighs> I can't really blame conservatives for liking or thinking that they like Abraham Lincoln. I mean, Abraham Lincoln is an American hero to a degree. But he was also problematic in his own way, as is pretty much every president. But the fact that they're using his name and all coming together uh, as if they're being outcasted by Hollywood... Hollywood doesn't care what your politics are. Hollywood cares if you can make money. And if people like James Woods can't draw an audience anymore, then that has nothing to do with their politics. But what's funny about that group is that there's another group that schismed away from it. And they call themselves by the same name. So they're now two different distinct groups of conservatives one of them doesn't like trump but still identifies as republican and the other group are more extreme and they are all trump supporters i mean there's something ironic about all of this that people have come together to create what they would could call a means of boasting their beliefs and standing up for what they believe in and yet they can't even all stand together and when you have all these people in this crowd coming toward the i am and they're following Roz, does Roz actually represent everyone in that crowd i don't think so does the i am represent anyone but himself i don't think so I believe that Ellison meant for the I am to kind of be almost like a nameless protagonist that the person who's reading could see themselves in. But that would be that would that would mean that that Ellison was making a greater commentary about the ignorance of the young American, which he was. But at the same time, it would neglect the idea that the I am is a distinct character, that he doesn't have an identity. He does have an identity. But unfortunately, he's constantly marred by his own ignorance, like mo most of us are. You know, I'll be the first to tell you, I think I'm an idiot. And the fact that I've been able to get as far as I have is remarkable. But, you know, I've pursued education partially because I want to stop being an idiot. But unfortunately, education doesn't, doesn't make you idiot-proof from yourself. I still make typos. I still make mistakes. The world keeps spinning. Nobody gives a shit. So, when Roz yelled, hang him, I let, the fly, I let fly the spear, and it was as though for a moment I had surrendered my life and begun to live again watching it catch him as he turned his head the shout ripping through both cheeks and saw the surprised pause of the crowd as Roz wrestled with the spear that locked his jaws. Some of the men raised their guns, but they were too close to shoot, and I hit the first with Tarp's leg chain and the other in the middle with my briefcase, and then ran through a looted store, hearing the blarging of the burglar alarm as I scrambled over the scattered shoes, upturned showcases, chairs, back to where I saw the moonlight through the rear door ahead. I'm going to stop here, and I'm going to read some, of, some more of my essay. 
because I think it's just that brilliant and poignant and I'm the smartest man alive. I say this after just calling myself an idiot. As chaos ensues in Harlem, the IM meets Roz a final time and faces another episode as powerless before finally succumbing to darkness in the coal cellar. Ellison questions the nature of power. Is it capitalist elite like men at the Battle Royale? Do men like Dr. Bloodzoe and Lucius Brockway control everything from the shadows? Are people manipulated into destroying themselves through organizations like the Brotherhood? Is true power temporary as a result of men like Roz fanning the flames of a riot? Ellison writes the I am pursuing power and dreaming that he will rise above his family's humble lifestyle. Yet he stands in Harlem, reaching inside his briefcase, feeling papers, shattered iron coins, my fingers closing over Tarp's leg iron, and I slipped it over my knuckles. Earlier, Dr. Bloodsoe proclaims a shackle represents the black race's progress, and the I.M. holds a leg iron, anticipating hitting an attacker in self-defense. Less than a moment later, Roz appears on horseback. Ellison even depicts Roz calling the I.M. a betrayer as he still clutches the leg iron. Roz serves as the animalistic, radical African-American protester who longs for the time prior to slavery. He rides a horse, throws a spear, and refers to black men as his brothers. The I.M. wants to break away from that heritage and pursue the American dream regardless of his race. Yet he never realizes how his race holds him back. Despite giving him a home, money, and clothes, the Brotherhood only wants the I.M. because he is a well-spoken, educated black man. Roz appears as his beckoning, as his reckoning for avoiding the past, especially his grandfather's advice. He clutches the leg iron because the IM is still chained to the system designed to make him fail. Ellison creates a distinction between black men as if they do not share the same race. Lynching another black man and calling him an Uncle Tom presents an intriguing contradiction as if the IM cannot win no matter who he tries to please. He cannot embody the attributes of Dr. Bledsoe or Brockway, nor don the identity of Reinhardt successfully. Roz wants to teach the black people a lesson because he does not believe in individuality as they must all remain in the same group never branching out. The I.M. tries reasoning with the angry mob that Roz is a pawn of the Brotherhood who only sought to destroy Harlem. In each instance, the I.M. attends negotiating against someone in power and he loses. The I.M. fails to note Brockway and Roz because he does not recognize their power and finds them insignificant to his journey. He stands facing loaded guns with a crazed Roz on horseback, yet the I.M. still misses the point. He conflates American identity with individuality. The I.M.'s American identity is two generations away from slavery, and he thinks obtaining power leads to the American dream. Roz craves power the same way the I.M. does, but Roz finds that power through generating fear and chaos. At one point, the I.M. did have the audience and backing that Roz now has at Clifton's funeral, and he wasted the opportunity. That moment brought him visibility. The reason why the I.M. keeps failing at obtaining power is due to ignorance and naivety. He dreams of vengeance against Bledsoe, and while revenge provides impetus to many powerful men, he forgets that and allows the Brotherhood to blind him. Even as death looks him in the eye, the I.M. keeps thinking that rather than acting. He deems himself invisible because Roz does not see him as an individual, but a little black man representing a greater evil. Similarly, Brockway only saw him as a potential union member there to usurp Liberty Paints. Each time the I.M. faces the lion, he never correlates his presence as equally important to those in power. The lion only pounces when the predator senses a threat. The MC and other men at the Battle Royale saw this little black man as threatening their white patriarchal power structure through social equality. Dr. Bledsoe thought a little black man would upset a white trustee and endanger the college's, college's funding. 
Brockway thought the little black man threatened his job through education and younger blood. Jack saw the little black man as threatening to discover the Brotherhood never cared about Harlem. The only difference between Roz and the I am at this moment is manpower. Finally, almost at the end of a rope, the I am takes his Roz's spear and disfigures him, strikes at the gunman with a leg iron in, in the briefcase, and throwing the spear and silencing Roz takes the grandmother's metaf- the grandfather's metaphor a step further. Rather than fighting the lion, the I am steals what brings Roz power his dissenting voice. The leg iron represents the past, the briefcase symbolizes the future, and the I am finally accepts them as his defense against power, taking away his freedom. The I am finally realizes what he left behind with Mary, and he seeks her for consolation and protection of sorts. So, as he's going to Mary's, this happens. I kept to the darker side of the streets into the silent areas, thinking that if he wished really to hide his strategy, he'd appear in the, in the district with a sound truck, perhaps, playing the friendly advisor with Westrom and Tobit beside him. They were in civilian clothes, and I thought cops until I saw the baseball hat and started to turn, hearing, Hey, you! I hesitated. What's in that briefcase, they said, and if they'd asked me anything else, I might have stood still. But at the moment, a wave of shame and outrage shook me, and I ran, still headed for Jack. But I was in strange territory now, and someone, for some reason, had removed the manhole cover, and I felt myself plunge down, down a long drop that ended upon a load of coal that sent up a cloud of dust and I lay in the black dark upon the black coal, no longer running, hiding or concerned, hearing the shifting of the coal as from somewhere above their voices came floating down. You, say the, you see the way he went down? Zoom! I was just fixing to slug the bastard. You hit him? I don't know. Say, Joe, the, you think the bastard's dead? Maybe. He sure is in the dark, though. You can't even see his eyes. Inward in the coal pile, eh, Joe? Someone hollered down the hall. Hey, black boy, come on out. We want to see what's in that briefcase. Come down and get me, I said. What's in that briefcase? You, I said, suddenly laughing. What do you think of that? Me? All of you, I said. You're crazy, he said. But I still have you in this briefcase. What'd you steal? Can't you see, I said. Light a match. What the hell's he talking about, Joe? Strike a match, the boogie's nuts. High and above, I saw a small flame sputter into light. They stood heads down, as in prayer, unable to see me back in the call. Come on down, I said. Ha <laughs> ha, I've had you in my briefcase all the time, and you didn't know me then and can't see me now. You son of a bitch, one of them called outraged. Then the, ma- the match went out and I heard something fall softly upon the coal nearby. They were talking above. I heard the man I heard ooh, I heard the cover settle over the manhole with a dull clang. Fine bits of dirt showered down as they stamped upon the lid, and for a moment I sent cold sliding in wild surprise, looking up and through black space to where For a second, the dim light of a match sank through a circle of holes in the steel. Then I thought, this is the way it's always been. Only now I know it, and rested back calm now, placing the briefcase beneath my head. I could open it in the morning, push off the lid. Now I was tired, too tired. My mind retreating, the image of the two glass eyes running together like blobs of melting lead. Here, it was as though the riot was gone, and I felt the tug of sleep seem to move out upon black water. It's kind of death without hanging, I thought. A death alive. In the morning, I'll remove the lid. Mary, 
I should have gone to Mary's. I would go now to Mary's in the only way that I could. I moved off over the black water, floating, sighing, sleeping invisibly. But I was never to reach Mary's, and I was over-optimistic about removing the steel cap in the morning. Great invisible waves of time flowed over me, but that morning never came. There was no morning nor light of any kind to awaken me, and I slept on and on until finally I was aroused by hunger. Then I was in the dark and blundering around, feeling rough walls, and the coal giving way beneath each step like treacherous sand. I tried to reach above me, but found only space, unbroken and unpenetrable. Then I tried to find the usual ladder that leads out of such holes, but there was none. I had to have a light, and now on hands and knees holding tight to my briefcase, I searched the coal until I found the folder of matches the men had dropped. How long ago had that been? But there were only three, and to save them, I started searching for paper to make a torch, feeling about slowly over the coal pile. I needed just one piece of paper to light and find my way out of the hole, but there was nothing. Next, I searched my pockets, finding not even a bill or an advertising folder or a brotherhood leaflet. Why had I destroyed Rein's, Reinhardt's throwaway? Well, there was only one thing to do if I was to make a torch. I'd have to open my briefcase. In it were the only papers I had. I started with my high school diploma, applying one precious match with a feeling of remote irony, even smiling as I saw the swift but feeble light push back the gloom. I was in a deep basement full of shapeless objects that extended far farther than I could see. And I realized that to light my way out, I would have to burn every paper in that briefcase. I moved slowly off towards the darker blackness, lighting my way by those feeble torches. The next was Clifton's doll, but it burned so stubbornly that I reached inside the case for something else. Then by the light of the smoke-sputtering doll, I opened a folded page. It was the anonymous letter which burned so quickly that as it flamed I hurriedly unfolded another. It was the slip in which Jack had written my brotherhood name. I could still smell Emma's perfume even in the dampness of the cellar, and now seeing the handwriting of the two in the consuming flames, I burned my hand and slipped to my knees staring. The handwriting was the same. I knelt there, stunned, watching the flames consume them, that he, or anyone at that late date, could have named me and set me running with one, and the same stroke of the pen was too much. Suddenly I began to scream, getting up in the darkness and plunging wildly about, bumping against walls, scattering coal, and in my anger, extinguishing my feeble light. And now I realized that I couldn't return to Mary's or any part of my old life. I could approach it only from the outside, and I had been as invisible to Mary as I had been to the Brotherhood. No, I couldn't return to Mary's or to the campus or to the Brotherhood or home. I could only move ahead or stay here underground. So I would stay here until I was chased out. Here, at least, I could try to think things out in peace. Or, if not in peace and quiet, I would take up residence underground. The end was in the beginning. The last line here, the end was in the beginning, is essentially telling you to go back to the prologue. We've already read the prologue, but you know what happens by now. Let us return to the essay. Ellison places the I am in the coal cellar as his rock bottom before his self-enlightenment, leading to stealing electricity. Two white men seal the manhole as the I am hides to protect himself, and he tries taunting them back to no success. While Ellison does not intend the novel as an African-American book, but rather an American novel that happens to feature a black protagonist, 
white men trapping a black man in a cellar full of black coal symbolizes the disadvantages of race due to racism. While Dr. Bledsoe and Brockway possess power in their positions and their organizations fall apart without their presence, they attain these positions through participation Whoa, through participating in the white patriarchal system. They displease, they please the white men with the money. But I'm going to be able to read this, but I keep burping because of the sparkling water that I'm drinking. I just refilled and I got some watermelon sparkling water. Um, so bear with me. <clears throat> Brother Jack and the men at the Battle Royale are the white men employing black men like Brockway and Bledsoe. The entire story, the I.M. tries separating himself from his race and pursues alignment with whites. Even his two sexual experiences are with white women. Two white men shutting him away in the coal cellar hearkens to the reality that he cannot escape his race. Opening his briefcase, he tries to create light in the darkness as he burns his high school diploma, Clifton Sambo doll, and a threatening letter from Brother Jack. He destroys his past inhibitions and the dreams he follows throughout the story. Still, his flames wither, and the darkness returns just as he fails in all his previous endeavors. All the men who wrong him appear in a dream where he argues... I'm through with all your illusion and lies. I'm through running. He still thinks these men wrong him through deception, but they all dispose of him as he threatens their power. He cannot escape them initially, but laughs at them as he realizes there's your universe and that drip drop upon the water you hear is all the history you've made, all that you're going to make. At this moment, the I Am realizes that those men in power lack significance outside of their own world. Each time he leaves their presence, they no longer hold power over him, but he allows their memory to run him. When they die, their legacy only lasts so long and no one remembers them. Therefore, their power is temporary and lacks significance. Allison creates a circular narrative as the prologue chronologically takes place following the final chapter before leading into the epilogue. While the prologue reveals the I.M. obtains literal power through the monopolated light and power company, the epilogue shows he questions the nature of power and his grandfather's advice. Ellison commences the novel as the I.M. proclaims, I am an invisible man, and explains later in the paragraph, simply because people refuse to see me. The Battle Royale follows the prologue and the MC and other men do not see him, but rather another black man. Ellison never provides the narrator a name for this reason. The I.M. tells the story from his perspective, but, he, but his intended audience is the world surrounding him who never cares about his name or identity. He threatens those in power because he crosses a barrier. Society, much like the men at the Battle Royale, wants him to remain only another insignificant black man. When he calls attention to himself, the men in power strike him because they want him to maintain the white patriarchal status quo. A reader without context cannot know that when they read the prologue and the build-up to the I am assaulting a man in the street appears sudden and unjust. Ellison even blurs the lines of reality so the audience questions if the I am truly possesses the ability of invisibility. After disfiguring Roz and witnessing the power of violence, the I am attacking this man for calling him an insulting name depicts him as still confused about the nature of power. The man does not see him as an individual, but as another desperate black man in Harlem after the riots. Rather than remaining in the darkness, the I am steals electricity and light bulbs as rebellion against the monopolated light and power company because it allows me to feel my vital aliveness. I'm not going to read any more of my essay. I'm not going to read any more of the book. These podcasts are not intended as a way for you to experience an audiobook or a synopsis or someone doing the work for you. And 
I've spent weeks going over this novel again that I've already spent weeks during a course going over. And as I was taking a break from the podcast and using the bathroom and reflecting on that experience in my last class, after we'd finished discussing The Invisible Man, you know, that was my last grad course. I had two classes that that final semester before my my thesis semester, which doesn't really count. But those last two classes, I remember with my African-American lit course, I wanted just a little bit more time. But, you know, my professor said that uh, he hadn't taught in a little while. He's been busy with administrative duties and I was very fortunate to have him as a professor and to, to read this book and learn what it actually means and how to apply it to not only writing an article that I'm very proud of, but also life. And it's a novel that I'll probably reference quite a bit for the rest of my life as a result of this class and the result of this man. And what's funny to me is that I had a similar reaction to my last graduate class as I did my last class in undergrad. I've probably told this story before, but bear with me. In 2015, I finished my senior seminar class, and we were all supposed to bring food and stuff, and it wasn't a very long class. We didn't really go over anything per se, as I recall. I think we read our essays or something, or parts of them. I certainly did not read all 20 pages of that that paper that I wrote on La Belle et La Bette, but uh, I brought Oreos. Um, I brought two packs of Oreos for people, and when it was all done, when we were dismissed, you know, some people were coming back the following semester, some were graduating like me, I didn't, you know, tell anyone goodbye that day, except for one person in the parking lot. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But as I was leaving that classroom, I stuffed the Oreos into a trash can, even though one of them was unopened. I didn't want anything to do with them anymore. I have a thing about germs. And uh, I walked out to my truck. And uh, I ran into uh, a guy who I'd had several classes with. His name was Sid. And I was wondering, what are you doing out here wandering around? Because he was uh, in a fraternity, so he wouldn't have parked over there. And I don't remember what he said to me, but that was the last interaction that I, I had with anyone on campus before leaving. And, uh, you know, I went home, and it was like any other day to me. And with grad school, my last class, uh, with my Britlet course, uh, I remember my professor brought food. I didn't partake in any, again, germs. And um, there were some discussions over something, again, I don't remember, even though it wasn't that long ago. And when I left, I was ready for it to be over. And when I came home from that last week of courses, last semester, uh, I knew I wasn't done yet. So I didn't have the same um, almost elation, like I was just totally through with everything, like I was in 2015. Because this past semester was, ooh, that was a doozy with my thesis and my oral exams. And now here I am finally getting around to talking about the invisible man which I've been wanting to do for months and you know maybe next week I'll start on two and a half men I haven't decided yet I also haven't decided how I'm gonna structure that quite yet I don't know if I'm gonna do I'm probably gonna do an episode on the the rationale behind uh, my my thesis and uh, toxic masculinity because uh, a large portion of 
why I did that thesis is because I wanted to not only help define and expand the definition of toxic masculinity and show that it could be applied a bit more broadly than a lot of people in my field realize. I also wanted to show that this sitcom, Two and a Half Men, that people have written off as either... um, you know, stupid, not funny, or not worth their time, whatever. So many different reasons for people not to like that show. I wanted to show that it had some merit, and it meant a lot to me. And you'll understand why when I get into it. But, you know, The Invisible Man also meant a lot to me, and I revisited it for that sake of, not nostalgia, but sentiment. Because... That class that I took meant a lot to me. That professor means a lot to me. And, you know, after having him on my 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 thesis um, board or whatever you want to call it, and I sent him a text message. He's the only professor that I sent a message to after that, thanking him. And he sent me one back. And, you know, he told me to keep in touch. They all say to keep in touch. Every professor tells you if, if you like talk to them a little bit, they tell you to keep in touch. But you know, I don't know to what extent that ever really means. But you know, he's a man that I respected a lot, and I hope that with my comparatively meager means of analysis, I have done him and Ralph Ellison's work justice. And and I want to thank you for listening this far and for supporting me throughout all of this because this is this has been something that's been building for a while and it's important to me and it should be important to you so thank you for listening to demise of the podcast with patrick attaway happy weekend happy writing bye